Hello, I'm Brittany Wilson. I'm Nia Wasink, and you're listening to The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Reframe. Together, Nia and I have over 30 years of nonprofit experience. We've worked the program side, the business side, and everything in between. We are reframing the nonprofit experience by challenging the status quo, because we know that nonprofits and their staff are undervalued, under-resourced, and unrelenting. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Reframe. Happy Monday, everybody. Today is the last Monday of February that we're recording this, February 22nd, and it will be released the first day of March. Holy moly. Where is the time going? It's almost spring. I know. I was super bummed with Punxsutawney Phil, but (laughs) we're... I mean, he didn't lie either. He said six more weeks of winter, and then the whole fucking country went into a polar vortex. So my belief and faith in him has been restored. He knows what he's talking about. What did the the bolder one say? What's his name? Like Uh, Flatiron Fred or something? It is, yeah. Um, He also said six more weeks of winter. Okay, well, they're they're both bound 100. 1,000. I know. 1,000. I don't know. A lot. They're hitting (laughs) a lot out of the park. Sports. (laughs) Sports. <laughs> How many more of those can we use during? No, no we won't. No. We'll spare you all. Speaking of sports, though, uh, yesterday our teams played each other in basketball. Yeah, I don't care about basketball. Oh, I do. Um, but I did the thing. I bet on Ohio State to win. Like I and put who won? Michigan. Oh, so you're happy. I'm happy. You lost money, but now you're still happy. Exactly. I think that is hysterical. You're the only person I know that bets against their team to win. <laughs> it's it's a strategy, it, and I stand by it. Well, in football, you would have made yourself a lot of money this year. I know. I know. I didn't get up on the apps in time. But now I'm set. I, I March Madness. It's going to be wild. Got all my gambling in place. Do you do the gambling stuff for, like, uh, the Super Bowl? I did a little bit this year. What are those? I don't know what they're called, but the ancillary bets of, like, how many times Giselle was going to show up. Oh, my gosh. First off, there are so many different ways to bet, and I had no idea. So the only time I've done sports betting before the last month was once six years ago when I was in Las Vegas, and my team was playing my husband's team. And I put money on my husband's team to win. This the same kind of concept. It's the only time I've done sports betting. And of course, it was with a human who could like tell me what to do. So now it's all app-based. And it's like, yeah, you can vote on one team or another. Or you can bet the split. Or you can just bet like how many total points. You can bet whether the final score when added will be odd or even. I mean, there are so many wow. ridiculous things you can bet on. But I like the ones that involve people that – for the Super Bowl, they had, like, which head coach was going to be the first one to take their mask off. Yeah. It is It yeah. is so funny. I think you should restate your logic for betting against your team. Okay. In case people aren't quite following. Um, and we talked about this in a prior episode, and I think I linked to the original source of this concept, which was an episode of Planet Money, a podcast that I also love. But the basic concept is you bet against your team. So if your team wins, great. You won. You're happy. If your team loses and therefore the other team wins, you're still happy because you made money. Yeah. 
and it's genius. Planet Money recommends you do this in all kinds of settings. You can bet against yourself. Uh, I'm going to fail this test. And then when you pass it, you're happy and you don't mind that you just lost $10 or whatever it is. To be clear, I'm not recommending gambling, um, especially given gambling addiction and its prevalence in our state. <laughs> yeah. But, okay. That's a good disclaimer. You know, we're month 11 in the pandemic, and sometimes I just need a little <laughs> excitement in my life. <laughs> exactly. You know, if you're a true fan addict, then you would then start to think that in order for your team to win, you have to bet against the other team because it worked. So now you better keep up the streak or they're going to lose. That gets expensive fast. I know. I know. So just be careful. It's a slippery slope. Well, speaking of other gambling things I've done, I purchased (laughs) one of these retail return boxes. So there's this website and you can do like Amazon, Target, Lowe's, whatever. You pay a flat rate for a box. You have no say in what is in it except like maybe some high level categories like clothing. I chose housewares. Yeah. And then it shows up and you just have this box of random stuff. <laughs> Shut up. I've never heard it. I think that's called a blind box. Yeah. That's what my girls tell me because they watch this on TV or like on YouTube of yes. the openings of the blind box. It, it's a total thing on TikTok too, which is probably how I heard about it or saw it. Um, and I'm quite sure I will need nothing that is in this box. But it's just a little. Do you bit of have it yet? No, it's it's still in shipping. Oh my god, I'm so excited! I think you need to do your blind box opening on the podcast. <laughs> I've already confirmed with a friend that we will do a live unboxing on Facetime together, so I could add in a uh, recording component to that. Sounds like your friend's going to be part of our podcast recording. <laughs> <laughs> This is the kind of VIP access that we could offer our members when we get our membership site up and going. Want to see what Nia paid money for that she doesn't need? Join our membership. Oh, gosh. I've never heard of such a thing. Could it be as big as a refrigerator? No, you get the specific dimensions of the box and they say like for the price I paid, I will get 10 to 15 items and they will be worth $250 to $500 total. And how much did you pay for it? 110 Okay. And I saw the judgment in your eyes with that. <laughs> there's no judgment. There's absolutely no judgment. I mean, I guess you're getting a great return on investment. You're at least getting double the value, over double the value. I think the purpose is for people who do reselling, like who would then go put it on eBay or something. Um which is why there's that, like, ratio of it. Um, I'm just excited to to have a total surprise show up on my doorstep. But, okay, so here's the thing, though. What what are you hoping it is? I have no like hopes and dreams. Literally not. You're unboxing it. You look inside and you're like, oh, yes. What would that be? It would probably be things that I could put vinyl on from my cricket and give us gifts. Oh. So this is also what we're going to be offering in our merch store. <laughs> you <laughs> You can get 
a nonprofit reframe branded toaster. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that would be so funny. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, folks will have to stay tuned. We'll report back. I mean, your cricket has just up-leveled our whole merch game. I know for Valentine's Day, you gave me this beautiful um, water bottle, which people can't see right now, but it is gorgeous. I'll take a picture. Maybe we can put it on our socials. Um, And now it's really just opened the door to we could put our logo on anything. It is really our merch prototype, what you have in your hands right there. So folks, stay tuned. Make sure you're following us on socials because that is where we will certainly unveil merch once uh, it's ready to go. I'm thinking like we could brand our microphones. We I saw somebody yesterday with their um, KitchenAid standing mixer and they had put all these cool vinyl things on it like flowers and shit. And then I was just thinking I, I should label everything in my house probably. 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 I think that's probably the safe bet. <laughs> Well, to tie this back to fundraising, it reminds me of, um, have you ever offered mystery boxes at your gala? No, but I've definitely bid on them. (laughs) Yes. That's like the best thing. You know, after you've done hundreds of hours of soliciting for silent auction items and packaged them together as best you can, and then you end up with just random Random stuff that doesn't there's no central theme you don't know how to like put it into the doggy basket or put it into the like cook at home basket so then you just take those things put them in a box by themselves make it a flat twenty dollars twenty five dollars and then people just get a mystery box i once won a mystery box of gift certificates gift cards oh um and it was very similar. Like, it didn't fit into anything that they had going. And all I remember <laughs> is there was definitely a spa card, which is great, like a free facial or something. Awesome. Um, a uh, shave club for men subscription. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. The $1 shave club or yeah, something? Yeah, 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 something like that. So, like, a year's worth of shaving and shaving utensils. I don't, I don't really know what you call them. Um, and then... <laughs> A gift card for um, a fruit platter. Ooh, that's so random. It was so bizarre. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Is it like like a King Supers fruit platter or like one of those fruit bouquet baskets? It's more along the lines of a fruit bouquet, but it was clearly like a lady who did it in her kitchen by herself and just like did specialty parties. Oh, it was like a privately done... But just one fruit platter. fruit platter. Was it amazing? Yeah, it was pretty. <laughs> I mean, you really can't go wrong with a fruit platter. There's so many different. I did not complain. I can't think of an event where that wouldn't be where that wouldn't be appropriate. Yeah, to, to bring a fruit platter. Now I kind of want to send myself a fruit bouquet. It sounds kind of. I kind of do too. I kind of do too. Right? We should. Have you ever gotten one? Oh my god, yeah. They're the best. With the chocolate dipped? Oh, so good. Yeah. Don't even bother sending it to me if there's not something dipped in chocolate on it. Well, yeah. Why would you? Right. And I've actually never had a facial. I have, and I fucking hate them. Oh, really? <laughs> I've had two, 
And it's just like the worst combination of all the things I hate. Like hot steam on my face is literally the thing of nightmares. Like when I was a child and learning about hell, it was like hot steam in my face. That was hell. Oh, wow. And I have taken it back. I have super sensitive skin. (laughs) And so every time like some product would inflame something and I walk out and oh, God, I hate it. Yeah, well, that's what I never understand by people who get them. I mean, I'm not opposed to getting one and trying it one time, but they're always like their skin looks worse for 24 hours. And then they're like, they're like, don't look at me. I just got a facial. And I'm like, well, what? I thought the whole point is so that you look better. (laughs) I guess it happens. It's like delayed gratification. I'm sure. And I I know people who swear by them. Like the massage part. Love that. Love, love, love that. Yeah. But the, the hot steam in my face. No, thank you. Good to know. When wanting uh, to torture Nia, yes, put her face over a warm humidifier. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about nonprofit failure. <laughs> dun dun dun! So we, well, you really found this article. Um, really great one. It, which is kind of like a post-mortem from this woman on her organization closing. Yeah. And she identifies five reasons as to why it closed after 10 years of success. And so we thought we'd, we'd uh, go through it and, and chat about it. Um, I know a lot of it rang true for me and for things we've said on the podcast in the past. Absolutely. And I think what's really great about the article is she she talks about all the ways – and how it should have been successful, like that they had a lot of the right ingredients. Um, and we'll get to that. But like one of them, for example, is that they weren't duplicating services. Great. Okay. Um, but yet they still failed because of these common mistakes. Yes. Um, so and we, and do you know, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot, so you probably don't know, but do you happen to know how many nonprofits fail? Um, gosh, I'm not going to be able to get the exact stat but it's definitely like over 50 percent will fail in the first three years something like that wow really yeah which is similar to small businesses as well right right like you just have to hit that that scale that actually makes sense and is more sustainable um but it's it's hard to get a really good number on that because so many organizations do remain teeny tiny and just kind of bump along even if they aren't providing services for a long time um Mm -hmm. And because of the ways that nonprofits are structured, that can happen, I think, a lot longer than the stats would indicate for us. Sure. All right. So uh, we'll link to the article in the show notes. Feel free to read it. Um, But the the high-level context, her organization was called Red Paw. It was out of Philadelphia. Um, And their purpose was to help with um, pets immediately following an emergency. So a fire at a home, the cats, the dogs, fish, bunnies, whatever, ensure that they got proper care and support as the family was getting the same. She had a background as a firefighter herself, structure fire specifically. Um, So she was on those calls and seeing this need, seeing the pets that didn't have a place to go as the parents and the family were given immediate shelter. And so created this organization to help address that kind of cool i've never heard of that before yeah it did make me think like yeah what does happen yeah i don't know i just assumed 
well, I don't know what I assumed. I guess I just assumed that people would be so panicked about them and then when they would get them, but then they're dealing with this huge trauma and incident. And so how nice to have some service that's like, don't worry about it, we'll take care of them. You kind of take care of you mm-hmm. and then we'll reunite you later. Yeah, well, it made me think of uh, the wildfires this summer. And she specifically said they didn't want to do like large scale disaster relief. Like they just didn't have the capacity mm-hmm. for that. But, you know, when we had the wildfires in Boulder County and folks were evacuating like entire farms, sometimes to Brittany's garage. <laughs> um, but just like what that process looked like it, with a very similar context of like, OK, we have these large animals. We can't bring them to a hotel with us. They need to be safe while we're evacuated. And so then the county and the Office of Emergency Management create a system. Well, if it's just your house, if it's just your family that's impacted, you're not going to have right. this system response like you do in a wildfire. Exactly. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, she claims that there was nobody else doing that service. So there was no duplication of services. Right. So her first failure, she cites, uh, she says it's the just say no. And in reading it, I mean, I think really what she was saying was just that they were stretched too thin. Mm-hmm. She had not really contemplated the appropriate scale. And so when they started integrating their services with Red Cross and local fire, um, a lot of it was very much a regional approach. I think she said like five counties were all tied in together. So she was responding to disasters across five counties. Yeah, and she gives an example of getting a phone call and that there was a pet and or family in need, but it was a six hour drive and how she just couldn't say no because she's so passionate about what they're doing and she's thinking, well, who else is going to do it if we don't? So we'll do it. And she's spreading herself thin by having to drive all the way out there and back. Well, I think this is one of those traps that so many small organizations get into which she identified too was she was worried if she said no, then they would just stop calling her entirely. Yes. This feeling like you just, you have to be available. Like people have to be able to see that you are responding. And so it, it's really not scaled appropriately for then your internal capacity, whether it's her, her volunteers, et cetera. And so many small organizations get into this. Um, and we'll talk about mission creep in a bit because that was one of her other points. But like, also just having such a broad mission that everything can fit into it. And so then the pressure to say yes is that much more intense because you haven't honed in to say, here is our specific lane. Yep, exactly. Okay, number two is having the right people in the right positions. Uh, The classic volunteer issue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She said the hill that she will die on is that you cannot run an emergency response organization with volunteers. Amen. (laughs) Amen. And that's not to say that volunteers can't be involved. I mean, like, look at every volunteer fire department we have. But you have to have some paid staff, somebody who is going to get that call at 2 a.m. and show up because they're actually being paid to do so. Right. And then, like, it also means you can have higher training requirements, um, better support, like PTSD kind of support, because they're actually on staff. But running an emergency response organization with volunteers does not work all that well. I mean, it comes down to reliability, right? Mm-hmm. And ma- knowing and trusting that when you make the call, the person is going to be ready to do whatever it takes in that moment. And when somebody's volunteering, 
I mean, as much as we know, you know, people are good hearted and they mean well and still like who wants to get up at two o'clock in the morning to go on an emergency call? Um, So, yeah, that's tough. The other thing she said was that uh, naturally because of the work she was doing, she recruited a bunch of animal people as volunteers. What she needed to recruit were emergency responders. Right. I think that's such an interesting, critical thing because so often I think nonprofits fall into this as well. You get people to your board, to your volunteer pool, whatever, because they really love the mission. But the work associated, they might not actually be suited well for. Um, Having spent, you know, six, seven years of my career in child welfare, this was so true. I mean, people who are just like, oh, my God, I love children. I can't imagine something horrible like this happening. But then when they're actually exposed to the trauma – when they're actually exposed to the kind of uh, right. lives that these kids are experiencing, they, they can't handle it. And so really ensuring that people have very clear expectations up front, but also really in-depth training so that they know what they're going to experience. Um, we had a – it was like a 40-hour training, I think, up front. And this was after background checks, interviews, et cetera. So this was before – Anybody could ever interact with a child. And part of that was because we needed to weed out people who who couldn't handle it. Who, right. you know, sitting with a child in trauma would be too much. That training was another step to weed out folks who this just wasn't a good role for. Well, and you bring up such a good point. I've seen it over and over again where, um, like she's talking about, she's attracting people who have a heart for um, who they're serving. You mm-hmm. know, whether that's an animal or a person or a child or whatever. Um, and they probably have some, some sort of personal connection mm-hmm. to that. And, um, sometimes through the work can be triggered oh, yeah. in not a healthy way. And, and so even though they want to help maybe in that role of, um, responding to someone in crisis or to an animal in crisis, that that's not the right role for them to be in. That is such a good point, and it just it just tickled this memory deep in my brain. Right, right. Uh, so that um, this woman came in to volunteer with me, um, and super sweet, similar, like just loved our mission, was so on board with it, so excited, and then through the interview process, um, disclosed a pretty significant child trauma history herself. And so then, like, we had this whole protocol of interview questions, um, things that we would ask. And it was, it was personal. Like, we needed to know if they had been traumatized themselves as a child. And then, like, how they were dealing with that, how that would or would not impact their work. And it became just very clear that she was not in a place to do this kind of thing. And so I was able to have a really honest conversation with her and redirect her efforts to maybe, like, more admin volunteer work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, tried to sell it. Like, you're, you're still going to be supporting the mission. You're still going to be supporting the kids, just not directly interacting with them. Yeah. Sounds great, right? I thought it was an appropriate move. And so we've got her in doing, like, some mailing or whatever. And we had some other volunteers there at the same time. Well, I leave, and I come back half an hour later. Everybody's crying. Uh-oh. She has unloaded her story. her story on all of these volunteers. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was so awful. I think that happens. I mean, again, that's another thing that that's not really talked about in the sector. I think that happens more often than we know. For sure. And that 
and that sometimes for people they think that by coming back and serving that's going to help them heal mm-hmm. but they're not they haven't they need to do some of that healing first like they're not ready yet yeah. they're not in a in a place to be able to serve in that way um and then it it can be detrimental to other volunteers other staff yeah other clients oh my gosh well and again like i think to your point too when people have had some sort of um, experience like that, some sort of trauma, and they have done the work and they're, you know, they're processing it, they can also have a better filter of what mm-hmm. to share. Like, I think she was just, it was still so raw that she shared yeah. all of it. And so it's just this, like, vomiting of trauma, 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 trauma. And all these volunteers just, like, wide-eyed and being like, what the <laughs> fuck? Oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we laugh because it's like, what else could you do? Cry. I mean, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. All right. The right people. Have the right people. Have them in the right places. We fully concur. Number three, mission creep. Ugh. She said it was like a runaway train because they didn't limit services up front. And then they would get stuck in these situations. So, like... They hadn't put parameters around how long they would keep a pet. So in her initial visioning, it was like, okay, 48 hours, maybe 72 while people get settled. She said that there was one pet they had for an entire year. And she even said, by we, I mean me. I had all their pets in my home. Oh, gosh. I mean, I can totally see how that would happen, too. Yeah. Right. And here's where there's always, I think, a push and pull of wanting – programs to evolve as you're implementing them, as you're understanding them, and putting parameters in up front. Yeah. Uh, One thing she said that I thought was really interesting was that they learned early on that so many of these animals needed basic vet care, like not related to the disaster, the emergency, whatever, but they had ringworm and they had ticks and fleas and all this stuff. And so they needed just basic vet care and they did not have veterinarians on their team. It's just not sustainable. Well, yeah. I mean, it speaks to, I think, partially, like, not understanding the needs up front. I don't know in this situation how they would have understood those better. Like, what kind of stakeholder feedback would have gotten them to that place? You know, in human services, we would always say, like, you don't build anything for somebody. You always build it with them. And that way you understand the needs and blah, blah, blah. It's different with both disasters and emergency response and animals. But I feel like there there probably could have been a way. <laughs> to do a little bit more research little, up front. Yeah, to, to understand that piece of what the needs were. Um, and and then also determine, like, what, what are your sidelines on that? Are yeah. you going to help provide that basic vet care? Are you going to get them to a veterinarian? Are you going to say no? And the families have to figure that piece out on your on their own. Yeah, you would think at a very basic level, you could find out people who have been through this experience who unfortunately did not have that service. And then you would interview them around what would have been helpful to you at that time. And, um, but I guess even then, it you have to take into account all the different I mean, people got some random animals in their house, <laughs> right? Like, I'm I'm 
thinking of this woman starting this and how she's just thinking of these like well cared for dogs and cats and stuff and then i think about the time that we had the floods here in 2013 and how they were going into people's houses that were supposed to be evacuating and there would be like 25 cats yeah yeah you know and i don't know in that particular instance But one could assume maybe that not all 25 of those cats were up to date on all of their vet care. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm sure you get some surprises. Well, she actually said that specifically. Like so many of the animals they were taking into care didn't have basic vaccines and all of the boarding houses and places they were using required them. Yeah. Like that seems like a pretty critical thing to note before you go into this business. Yeah. Did she, I wonder, did she also put parameters around what animal she would take? I don't know. Like, what if there was a big ass snake? Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm not doing it. I'm not taking it. My husband and I have been binging Good Bones, the HGTV like flipping show out of Indianapolis. Um, really cute mother daughter team. They just go about gentrifying Indianapolis, basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> But there was an episode recently where they go in and they can tell there's a big snake enclosure. No. Mm -mm. And then they start finding the baby snakes everywhere. No. Oh, gosh. (laughs) I'm going to throw up. Oh, that is my absolute worst nightmare. Don't get into house flipping or animal rescue. (laughs) Oh, God. I know. I know. Okay. Anyway, to go back to the topic at hand, I mean, mission creep is such an important thing for any organization. <laughs> oh, I, I totally forgot we were talking about mission creep. <laughs> but I, I do think it, it's especially important for young nonprofits because sometimes the mission is intentionally broad because you don't know what you're doing yet and you're not sure where the organization is going to evolve to and how it's going to evolve. Um, but you got to try to get there faster. <laughs> Well, and mission creep is so sneaky because it can come in on kind of the program side with these um, surprise needs that you didn't think of, like we were talking about, Mm -hmm. and or it can come in on the funding side where, as we all know, we've talked about it multiple times, it's like, oh, well, maybe I can get this grant, um, but it's a little different. It's not quite our mission, but we could add something to our program and we could probably make it fit. Or you even get a private donor who's like, hey, I'll give you all this money, but you also need to, um, you know, house reptiles. And then next thing you know, you're, you're changed your mission completely in order to get uh, the funding. And you can no longer be friends with Brittany. Uh, no, we're not friends. <laughs> I've already told Harper loves snakes. And I said, if she gets them, I'm never visiting her. Yeah. And that she can't live with me if she has a snake. So, Good expectations to set up front. <laughs> I'm, I'm such a great mom. <laughs> well, that uh, point, though, carries perfectly into her number four, which is funding categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is an interesting one because I think part of this is a bit of a construct um, that we have coming from philanthropy. But she was basically like, We're not really animal welfare. We're not exactly disaster or emergency response. We're in this middle zone. And so funders didn't know what to do with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're saying that that's a construct because um, 
those are limitations that are put on by the funders. Yeah. And my guess is anybody who's going to fund animal welfare and disaster relief or emergency response would be like, oh my gosh, this organization fits both. Right. But I, I know, I mean, part of it can be the organization feeling those limitations, but it also can be the funder that is being much more strict about that. Maybe they have specific outcome areas related to both that she really can't, you know, speak to in her organization. But I, I know that it's a real thing. I mean, I closed down a nonprofit for very similar reasons. Um, funders didn't want to give to what we were doing. They didn't think it was important. Um, and I don't know that the categories are necessarily the reason that funding wasn't coming. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, number five. This is the last one and probably the most important. Um, and what she s- states in the article was – the final thing that really drove her was the nail in the coffin, so to speak. Yes. Burnout. Dun, dun, dun. I don't know about you, but when I got to this part of the article and she's ex- describing like where her organization was, they had a COO, they had hired staff, they were getting direct referrals instead of having to go through Red Cross. Like they had actually addressed some of the initial barriers she had set up. I was like, oh my God, this is great. Like it sounds like you've hit stride, you're getting to scale. Right. But she said those 10 years of getting to that place burned her out. Absolutely. She's got people's pets in her house for over a year <laughs> paying for their vet bills. Uh, do you think she would take Snowflake? Who's Snowflake? Ted Cruz's dog that got left behind. No. <laughs> Shameful. It is. I don't even know about that. I can't wait to learn more, though. <laughs> Snowflake get, didn't get a ticket to Mexico, I guess. No, there's this great photo of Snowflake in the front door just, like, looking longingly outside. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I mean, it, burnout's a real thing. Yeah. But, you know, what she describes from there, though, I think is probably one of the better situations. She and her team, she had a COO at that point. She had staff. So the organization as a whole at that point actually put a proposal back to the Philadelphia Fire Department. It included some training, some integration with OEM, the Office of Emergency Management out there, so that essentially some of the services could continue. I'm sure not at the depth or level that she was able to provide through the organization, but at least there would be some sort of care taken of these pets in in these situations. Um, And then she officially sunset the organization from there. So wait, is she the CEO or did she hire a separate CEO? She hired a COO. See, I don't know. I would say number six can be founder syndrome. I know. I was curious about that as well, having read this. Without even having met her, but just knowing that that is such a symptom of founder syndrome, right? As someone who has never worked in nonprofits before, has never led an organization like that, even though she quote unquote scaled it and got these other staff members, that's a lot for someone to do who's, you know, the first time at it, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. I know I'm making some big assumptions here because I don't know her personally. Um and had she been able to pass off the reins, and that's what I'm kind of curious about too, is was it ever considered for her to leave? I know. It, 
I, I think I had similar questions because it did seem like they hit scale. I mean, it seemed like it was much more sustainable. And I, I mean, also, this was a short article. We're not getting the full depth of understanding. Right. She never once mentioned her board, which I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's some, some there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of assumptions, we're just going to go and say, go ahead and say that there's something going yeah. on with the board too. But like, I didn't get okay. So we've got all these things in place now. We've got a better structure. We've got staff. We're going to close down. Like, what what happened in the middle there? Was was it a funding issue? Was it something else? But it feels like... Right. Did she did she not hire a development director and that's right. the problem? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it feels like there's a missing piece in the middle. And then one of the questions was, well, was it just that she couldn't do it anymore and couldn't hand the reins over? Well, it's not an uncommon story. No. For small nonprofits out there. No, there are so many teeny tiny little organizations that struggle with this kind of stuff um, and it's really hard to see I, I just came across a new organization and uh, in our community here in Longmont um, and the work they're doing seems super interesting um, and super niche and I was like huh I wonder I wonder what that's going to look like for them long term I wonder if they're going to be able to get integrated with the big right. providers um which she, she talked a little bit about in here of like how, how they get referrals and things. But I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, just my continued interest in um, our policy decisions locally around homelessness and services for the unhoused. Um, and an article came out recently about all of these nonprofit service providers that have basically sprung up outside of the system mm-hmm. to provide a different kind of safety net. But even that in and of itself prov- – I mean, it presents a lot of issues because the organizations that are working within the system, they're getting city and county funding. They've got direct referrals. They've got access to their client pool, whereas these external organizations, although providing really critical services, I'm not saying anything bad about that, but it's just that much harder if you're going against the grain to then get the clients, to get the funding, to get the the key support that you really need. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I would love to hear from people who are listening if they have been part of an organization that ended up sunsetting, (laughs) I like that term, or dissolving. um, And, you know, what were the main reasons around that? Because I'm sure there's quite a few. Yeah. And I also, I just want to thank the the woman who wrote this article. Um, I, I think it's a pretty vulnerable thing. I mean, this was 10 years of her life that she devoted to this organization, clearly did some really amazing stuff, and then had to make that hard decision. Whether it was founder syndrome or something else, that is an intensely difficult process. Um, I can say from experience, just being a board member during that, how emotional it was, how draining. Um, And then to to share it with the world for podcast hosts like us to dissect it, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, absolutely. For her to say, you know, please learn from some of these quote unquote mistakes, which, you know, are just kind of learning curves too along the way. Um, And to say, because I know that there was um, all the reasons why it should have succeeded, Mm -hmm. but still didn't. And so these might be blind spots. They were for us and they might be for you. So, yeah, I think that's great. I fully agree. I think that's all I have on this topic. 
You got anything else? All right. No, that's it. Um, like I said, if you have any stories, if um, these different points that we brought up today, just like Nia happened with Nia, it tickled her brain and... <laughs> Those are her words. I'm so sorry. I used those words. (laughs) (laughs) And you thought of something, then uh, please let us know. And how can they reach out to us? Um, Well, before that, I forgot. I wanted to do a shout out at the beginning of the episode, and I totally forgot. So hopefully this person is still listening to the end because uh, this is important. Shout out to Victoria. Victoria. Somehow, Victoria and I connected on Twitter. I'm sure she said something absolutely remarkable on some post. I started following her. She's in nonprofits. And then over the weekend, she posted this article from the New York Times, um, which is just super shitty, super, super shitty article about like overhead and how donors still give a shit about that somehow. Uh, And so we were just we were having a conversation back and forth about the overhead myth and even just some of the assumptions in the article. And she had a fangirl moment that. I was responding to her, which then... Oh, we, you have a fangirl. She's a listener to the pod. Um, and Love it. I, uh, Victoria, just want to say I'm now a fangirl of yours um, because this is my first, like, um, fan in the wild kind of situation. Fan in the wild. I love it. Well, we talk about it all the time. This medium of podcasting is so bizarre because we're just putting content content that came out weird content into the universe and then we don't have any kind of direct response we don't know we know how many people downloaded it but we don't know who those people are and we don't know what they thought about it after they listen to it unless somebody actually takes the time to message us on socials or send us an email or whatever and so sometimes um, I know I do I forget our reach and so it's so fun when we find someone all the way across the country that's been listening and is a fan of the show um, and we didn't even know that someone was listening yeah. So if you want your own shout out, um, engage with us. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Nonprofit Reframe. Shoot us an email, nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. We're super nice. Most of the time. <laughs> I'm, I'm super nice. Okay, sure. <laughs> and as always, now is the time. It's always going to be the time. Like, I guess I can stop saying you've that. You've been saying that for a year and a quarter. <laughs> I know. But it is. It's just every day our nonprofits are out there um, helping those. I mean, I think about everybody down in Texas right now and what this polar freeze has done and how there's all these organizations that are stepping up to help people in need. And so we need to do our part and support those organizations. So if you have capacity, please support your local organizations by giving and giving generously. Thanks, folks. We would like to thank our sponsors. Mission Launch is a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com and Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much. Without knowing anything about her, but um, it's just so common, and that's such a, a great point of somebody who you know, is, um, what the fuck is that? That's the cat's food bowl that when our electricity went out, <laughs> it, it may, I haven't, I have to reset the clock on it. So it's like happening sporadically. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's so funny.
I'm so sorry. <laughs>